welcome to the first installment of New Books in Military History. I'm your host, Jay Lockenauer. Every couple of weeks, I'll sit down with the author of a recent book in military history. And today, it's my great pleasure to have Professor Gregory J.W. Irwin from Temple University, who is the author of Victory and Defeat, The Wake Island Defenders in Captivity, that was published last year by Naval Institute Press. This is Irwin's second book on the subject of Wake Island. Uh, his first appeared in 1997, was titled Facing Fearful Odds, The Siege of Wake Island. And that told the story of the battle for Wake Island that occurred in December 1945. The battle for Wake Island was important at the time, uh, especially for the American public as a kind of morale booster. It was the only bit of good news that the American public was getting in that that opening month of the war as the Japanese marched from victory to victory. The Wake Island defenders held out until December 23rd. But once they enter Japanese captivity, they largely disappear from view. As Irwin tells it, there's the story of their three-and-a-half-year captivity is a fascinating one. Even more so, because of those 1,621 men, 85% of them returned home at the end of the war. They suffered a mortality rate of only 15%. And you can't see me making air quotes around only, because, of course, uh, that's a tragedy. There are many individual tragedies caught up in that. In that number. But that rate of 15% contrasts starkly and quite favorably with the overall rate, uh, mortality rate of 28% suffered by Allied prisoners in general and 38% suffered by American prisoners in Japanese hands. And so to explain this disparity is the task that Irwin has set for himself. But like most great historians, Irwin also strives to tell a story. I think you can get a sense from the interview of what a good story uh, Irwin is capable of telling. And that's what makes this book not only a meaningful piece of scholarship, but also a great read. I hope you do decide to read the book. I hope you enjoy the interview and leave some comments on the website, friend us on Facebook. And most of all, I hope you'll be back for more. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure today to inaugurate the uh, New Books in Military History Network by speaking with uh, Professor Gregory J.W. Irwin, who is a professor of history here at Temple University and the author most recently of Victory and Defeat, The Wake Island Defenders in Captivity, published by Naval Institute Press in 2010. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Dr. Irwin. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jay. Thanks. we like to begin these interviews by having the author tell us a little bit about himself. So why don't you tell us about your background as an historian? Well, uh, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> as far back as you feel is necessary. Well, I, uh, you know, I grew up in, uh, in the 60s and was influenced by the Civil War centennial. I think that put me online to becoming a military historian. I uh, graduated from uh, college in, in 1977, earned an M.A. at John Carroll University, working under Donald Smythe, John J. Perkins, biographer. Then I went for my Ph.D. work at Notre Dame and worked under Robert uh, Lee Kirby, who, with a name like that, had to be a Civil War historian. He wrote Kirby <laughs> Lee's Confederacy. Uh, and then I um, uh, was lucky, uh, especially it, it being uh, 1984, I was able to to land a job, uh, uh, really two years before I got my PhD, 1982, at St. Mary of the Plains College in Dodge City, Kansas. Uh, and after two years of being the American History Department in that rather small school, I, I moved to a bigger place, the University of Central Arkansas, where I worked from 1984 until uh, 1999, when I had the good fortune to uh, to join you at Temple University. Well, we're glad to have you. All right. So um, you've written this book about the uh, Wake Island Defenders, but this isn't your first book about Wake Island. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this one? Well, yeah, uh, intellectually, um, if I can use that that uh, term, I, I've spent about 30 years of my life on a desert island. I uh, bumped into um, uh, the uh, Defenders of Wake Island when I was doing my MA work in the late uh, 70s. I was doing a thesis on George Custer in the Civil War, but uh, was doing magazine work and, and had written on, on what happened there and, and got contacted by a veteran who said, would you like to know what really happened? And uh, saw a chance to maybe do some original research and some oral history, which intrigued me. And, and one thing led to another. Um, I did a dissertation based on uh, the, the battle for Wake Island, the short battle for Wake Island in December 1941 and the long captivity of the Wake Island defenders. And then in between other projects, I finally got around to uh, doing a book on the uh, uh, the fight for Wake, uh, uh, facing fearful odds, the siege of Wake Island. It came out in, in 1997 from University of Nebraska Press and the uh, Marine Corps Heritage Foundation gave it its 
its book award. And then again, after doing a couple other Civil War uh, uh, edited volumes, I, I finally uh, brought out a book about the POW experience, which is victory and defeat. Well, it's a, it's a welcome addition. The uh, The book on Wake Island is a, is a large and detailed one, and this one um, is also a, a, a very detailed story of these uh, the survivors of this battle. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the circumstances in which they they uh, came into Japanese captivity, maybe the, the, the end of the battle. So, well, certainly. Uh, Wake Island is, is an, was an American possession 2,000 miles west of Hawaii. It was about 600 miles north of the Japanese-held uh, Marshall Islands. The U.S. Navy was trying to develop it into a kind of uh, advanced outpost for monitoring that part of the Pacific, uh, lookout post for any Japanese attacks from the south toward uh, Pearl Harbor, toward Hawaii, and a possible jumping off point for attacking the marshals. And so the Japanese naturally uh, uh, made it an early target when they uh, uh, opened their war against the United States on uh, December 7th, 8th, 1941. And uh, their first attack fails. They were, they were spread pretty thin across the Pacific, and they had higher priority targets uh, so they only sent a small fleet with some outdated uh, light cruisers and a few destroyers and small landing force. And they were repulsed by by uh, the uh, Marine garrison on Wake, uh, which didn't have heavy armament. Uh, it was a big victory for the Americans, and it became kind of an early rallying point uh, coming four days after, after uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, but uh, the Japanese uh, really wanted Wake, so they reinforced uh, – uh, their, uh, the task force that was uh, assigned to attack it, they came back on the night of December 22nd, 23rd. Uh, they landed about 900 troops uh, on Wake uh, under the cover of darkness. They didn't want to uh, trade shots with the American artillery again. And uh, they're able to overrun enough of the atoll to convince uh, uh, the senior American officers who ended up being cut off from communications with troops who were still resisting. Uh, they convinced uh, the, uh, the the American command at Wake that, that the battle was lost, and so they would surrender uh, on December 23rd, 1941. Great. I want, I want to come back to that question of um, the decision to surrender and, and the issue of Wake as a symbol, because I think that's, that's an interesting part of this story as well. Uh, and you raised the issue of the movie, which I definitely want to, want to talk about um, in a bit, but first, uh, the 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 defense of Wake Island is really conducted on a on a shoestring, according to your story. I mean, it's a, yeah. preparations begin rather late. The, the United States, because of uh, its uh, uh, isolationist uh, cast uh, after World War One, uh, is slow to uh, react to the growing Axis threat. Uh, President Roosevelt has to disguise a lot of his uh, attempts at military preparedness as as uh, hemispheric defense. And it isn't until um, um, uh, early 1941, January 1941, that, that the government uh, sends out uh, civilian construction workers to try converting Wake into a uh, seaplane base and a submarine base, uh, largely for reconnaissance uh, purposes. Uh, by the time uh, the war breaks out, there are 1,146 of these contractors, as they were called, at work on the atoll. They still have a few months to go before they finish the, the facilities. Uh, but once uh, the United States began developing Wake as, as a base, that made it all the more uh, of a target. You know, they realized the Japanese would have all the more reason to try and seize it. So in August of, of 1941, they began sending small increments of Marines out to Wake to uh, emplace uh, seacoast artillery, six five-inch guns, anti-aircraft artillery, machine guns, searchlights, uh, uh, sound detectors, things like that. Um, and um, by the time war breaks out, there are 524 American military personnel on Wake. Uh, most of them are Marines. Um, uh, well, about 380 are in a defense battalion manning the artillery. Uh, there are about 60 or so who, who are attached to a Marine fighter squadron, BMF-211. Uh, there are about 60 U.S. Navy personnel, and they also had about six U.S. Army radio personnel. Their job was to uh, provide a homing beacon and communications for the B-17 bombers. Uh, that the United States was trying to fly through to the Philippines, uh, which they thought would be the deterrent uh, to keep Japan from from striking at, at the United States and its allies. And, of course, that 
that strategic panacea didn't work. Um, there really weren't enough men on wake to hold it against a determined attack. The U.S. Navy figured you needed 1,800 uh, to defend it against raiding parties. Uh, but uh, they will uh, put up an uh, uh, unsurprisingly fierce uh, uh, resistance uh, when the Japanese come, uh, not only in the first landing attempt on December 11th, but also during multiple air raids. The Japanese are, are shocked that their losses are as heavy as they were, and, and they're also shocked that American losses were as light as they were. Fewer than 100 Americans are killed during the defense of Wake, and about half of them are civilians. It must have been quite a feeling to be out there on, on what you rightly point out is not even technically an island in the middle of the Pacific. It's a it's an atoll, right? Yeah. Uh, and knowing that the Japanese Navy had its eye on you. Yeah, well, basically, you know, you're living on, on, on what's left of the rim of an extinct volcano, uh, and uh, there's not much landmass there. Uh, I mean, wake, wake itself from tip to tip was about, uh, I think, a seven-mile walk. Uh, and, and, and the breath. I mean, there's a lagoon in the middle there, so you're surrounded by, surrounded, but literally surrounded by water in more ways, more ways than one. Uh, and it's very low lying. People there uh, during bad storms, they they were afraid that the the atoll would sink. Now they wouldn't, but, but I mean that was the impression they had when the waves were coming up uh, and covering so much of the ground to which they were clinging. Well, this is we've been dwelling a bit, perhaps too much, on the on the earlier work, which details the the battle and the and the uh, ultimate surrender of these, this contingent on Wake Island. Now, tell us a little bit about that decision to surrender. You you hinted that perhaps it wasn't quite justified yet. Should they have held out a little bit longer? Well, uh, and that's a good question. Um, Wake is two thousand miles away from Pearl Harbor. The U.S. Navy had, had sent a relief force out to try and land another Marine. Uh, fighter squadron and additional marine reinforcements and other necessary things like radar and extra machine guns. Uh, but the Japanese got there first, and uh, they get their troops ashore. And uh, the uh, um, island commander, uh, Winfield Scott Cunningham, he was commander in the U.S. Navy, and he radios Pearl Harbor and says, enemy on island, issue in doubt. Pearl Harbor tells him, uh, you can expect no friendly forces within your vicinity for uh, for 24 hours. They never, they never told them that they had recalled the uh, the uh, relief force. And communications on Wake was done by field telephone, World War One technology. And when the Japanese came ashore, they they cut any wires they found. So on the south shore, where where the enemy landed, where the most intense fighting was going on, um, command post after command post falls silent. And Commander Cunningham and the senior Marine commander, Major James P.S. Devereaux, they just assume that, that these positions have been overrun. In reality, a small group of Marines uh, uh, wiped out one Japanese beachhead. They killed about 100 Japanese uh, Marines or Special Naval Landing Troops. And the main enemy landing, its, its west flank was in the process of being being collapsed uh, by a counterattack led by a Marine lieutenant with, with four machine guns and about 60 to, to 80 riflemen. Um, so they were doing real well, but the Japanese had about another 1,000 uh, um, uh, Marines offshore, and the Japanese admiral in charge of the operation, he was prepared to run his, his destroyers aground and send their crews into the battle with rifles. Uh, and, and with no protection, no relief coming, uh, you know, they might have held out a little bit longer, but many more of them might have died. Your second chapter begins uh, is is subtitled or is titled "The Emperor Has Presented You with Your Lives," and and I think that's a a telling uh, introduction to the story of their captivity. What what were their feelings uh, as they entered Japanese captivity? It's intense shame. Uh, some of the Marines that I interviewed they insisted to me uh, I didn't surrender. My officers uh, or my officer or officers surrendered me, ordered me to surrender. Uh, they were trained that Marines don't surrender. That was a mantra that was drummed into their heads going back to the uh, uh, their wars in the Banana Republics where they're fighting bandits and rebels who didn't take POWs. Um, so, I mean, and also they believed that the Japanese wouldn't take prisoners. I mean, they, they were privy to uh, the news reports coming out of China, the rape of Nanking, etc. 
so, I mean, these guys thought, okay, I'm signing my death warrant. Maybe the Japanese will spare the civilians, but they're going to kill me. And the Japanese made every indication that that was their plan. They stripped these guys down to their underwear, completely naked. They bound them with telephone wire. They lined them up in front of uh, machine guns. And uh, it wasn't until the admiral commanding the fleet came ashore, and, and sometimes he had to argue with subordinate commanders, but these guys were, were routed up. Some of them were given some clothing back and taken to a central location where it, the body language of the enemy didn't indicate that they were going to die that day. Uh, fortunate for them that one of the sort of amusing moments in this uh, episode is when they're reissued clothing that they can't seem to find uh, the proper sizes. And you mentioned that, that most of these were all men, first of all, and they were um, almost universally in excellent physical condition because they'd been working hard on this uh, on this island for at least several months. And I wondered where all the size 42 and 44 pants came from well, <laughs> that they all seemed to find. There are a lot of big Mormons, uh, construction workers <laughs> up there. Uh, the contractors, uh, they, they could work as much overtime as they wanted. And that's why a lot of got, those guys went out there. It's the depression and they wanted to make as, as much money and get back home uh, to tide them over during slack periods in construction. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, but they were fed. The civilians were fed very, very well. Uh, that, that their, their camp galley was going uh, 24-7 and a guy could go in and just eat whatever he wanted. So you could, you could be in good shape but still be husky on Wake Island. The Marines weren't fed that well. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, the Japanese with the clothing, all they did was after they get concentrated the POWs, they just bought piles of the stuff that they had found. They threw it um, um, beside the POWs and they said, you know, you've got to get dressed and speedo, speedo, speedo. You only got a few seconds. So people just grabbed what they could and they did some swapping later. But uh, as you, as you know, some of them ended up with, with clothing that didn't quite fit them. Um, most of the captives were eventually uh, shipped to China for long-term uh, internment. But the, uh, tell us a little bit about the time that they did spend on wake, those initial days. Well, once the frenzy of battle cooled and, and, and the Japanese landing troops uh, kind of got over the shock and grief that comes from you know, winning a, a, a victory, you know, in effect, they stormed the fortress and suffered heavy losses, um, once they got over that um, and they knew they had the Americans under control, they, they moved them to these uh, barracks that the civilians were building as part of the, uh, the base facilities there. And, and they put them in American-style barracks. They cordoned the area off with barbed wire. Uh, but these guys were able to live, in effect, in, in barracks with, with electricity, with flush toilets, with saltwater showers. The Japanese allowed the civilian cooks to take over their galley again. Um, and they lived off canned American food. The perishable stuff, uh, when power went out during the siege, had spoiled. Uh, but they were able to eat, you know, two fairly good uh, meals a day. Get oatmeal in the morning and some sort of stew later in the afternoon. Uh, the Japanese put some of them to work on burial details, gathering weapons and, and cleaning things up. But, but they didn't overwork them. And they really didn't abuse them, except for a few people who they interrogated, looking for missing artillery parts. Uh, most, most of the POWs, it was, it was a relatively gentle transition to POW life, especially in Japanese hands. And this is an important uh, part of your story, is that the, um, in contrast to, for example, the, the people who are taken captive on the Philippines, that, that it is this sort of um, slow, relatively uh, gentle introduction into POW life. Yeah, that helped. I mean, you know, there were, Wake wasn't big enough for death march. And also the siege of Wake had only lasted 16 days. So unlike the fellows in the Philippines who were uh, holding out at Bataan on substandard rations from January to April, uh, in a jungle setting, these guys aren't, uh, you know, they're not malnourished. They're not walk walking skeletons. There's some dysentery, but, but you know, they're not afflicted by beriberi and scurvy and, and dengue and malaria and things like that. And, and, you know, the shape you're in when you go into captivity, that, that makes a big difference as, as to your survival prospects and also how you behave. Uh, if you're not in good shape, you're, you're concerned about number one and, and not as willing to uh, make sacrifices for the common good, which is only natural. You do argue that um, one of the keys to the remarkable survival rate of these captives is their, is their cohesion, their, their sense of, uh, of a collective mission to survive. 
yeah, they, 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 they've worked together uh, in some cases for years. A lot of these civilian construction workers have, were Morrison Knutson veterans, and they helped build the Grand Coulee Dam and, and other major structures in, in the West. And, and Wake was just another job. Um, even the newcomers, you know, assimilated quickly because Wake was isolated. You, you had to, these were the, these were the only people around, so they became you know pretty close friends. Uh, and the Marines, the, the same thing. Uh, a lot of these people were trained together, it served together in the same unit, and and uh, combat helped to strengthen uh, bonds in a lot of cases too. And they retained their leadership. The Japanese don't, uh, for the most part, uh, separate their officers and, and don't take away the civilians. Foreman. Uh, so uh, when the leadership asserts itself in prison camp, uh, the rest of the organization, for the most part, I mean, there are certain lapses and failures, but for the most part, the, the organization responds. And it's the, the Marine commander, Major Devereaux, who plays an important role in that, right? I mean, he's, um, if there is a protagonist to the book, I guess you could say he's he's it. Yeah, Devereaux, uh, Devereaux I guess, emerges as, as one of the heroes in the story, uh, Commander Cunningham, who was senior to him, arrived at Wake on the 28th of November. So he, he, he doesn't really have the bonds with, with the garrison that, that Devereaux does. And, and Cunningham kind of removes himself from the group early on. He participates in the unsuccessful uh, escape attempts. So the Japanese place him in, in uh, close confinement in, uh, in Shanghai. Um, but uh, Devereaux, uh, Devereaux was uh, one of the most hated Marines of his time. He was a uh, uh, an aloof martinet. He came from an aristocratic background. He was he was a cold and reserved man. Uh, I met him in, in the mid '80s, and I can testify to that. I mean, he wasn't as pleasant to me, but there was this, 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 this sense that he was better than I was, and everyone else in the room. Uh, I don't know if I can say this, but, but uh, could I reveal what the troops called him behind his back? I'm sure you can. This is the Internet. Okay. Uh, well, uh, his initials, uh, his first three initials were JPS, James Patrick Sonat, and then Devereaux. The troops used to say that the JPS stood for just plain shit. Uh, he, the guy would use white glove inspections. He'd write people off, deny them liberties for tri- trivial offenses. He does a good job, though, with, with the defensive wake. It was his idea to wake on December 11th until the Japanese came to within point-blank range by artillery standards, 4,500 yards, before his guns opened up. He played possum, and that's how he sank one of their destroyers and routed the rest of their their, their task force. Uh, and then, but to get to your question, that insistence on military discipline, military courtesy, military order, remembering that you're part of a group, that you are accountable for your actions, even though you're a POW, you're still a Marine, you're still a sailor, you're still a soldier, you're a civilian, you're, you're, you're still an American, you're part of this group. He is going to be one of the, the, the prime, uh, the prime uh, props for that attitude, uh, especially among the Wake Islanders. There's going to be other people from other groups who come in who, who support that position. But, but Devereaux, uh, as far as the Wake Island Marines and, and, their, and their auxiliaries are concerned, he's, he's the guy that makes sure that uh, they, they don't do things uh, for which they would be ashamed when they got home. Uh, so you described their initial experience of captivity as a, as a pleasant is, is not the right word, of course, but a, um, a, a gentle introduction to captivity. Um, but their trip to China was certainly no picnic. The Japanese take uh, on January 12th about 1,200 of them and put them on a converted luxury liner pressed into Imperial Navy service uh, with the start of the war uh, called the Nita Maru for, for transportation uh, to Shanghai. Uh, they, the POWs are crammed into holes. They don't get near any of the, of the nice cabins or anything like that. And uh, there's a 50-man um, guard detail on, on the uh, Nita Maru. Uh, so, you know, they're worried about keeping all these guys under control. But at the same time, uh, these, these Japanese troops, uh, they haven't seen combat yet. They're kind of eager to prove that they're as full of Bushido as, as, as the next guy. And, and they go out of their way to intimidate the POWs by, well, from the moment they, they come on board, beating the living stuffings out of them. And then, uh, you know, they have all these rules and regulations, and if they see anybody deviating, talking without permission, they'll just um, st- 
stand them up or make them hang from a from a girder and 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 just uh, and just beat them uh, you know, until he's senseless. And uh, so they're trying to maintain order, but they they got a lot of pleasure out of what they were doing too. How long did this trip to China last? Well, they uh, they they go to, to Yokohama and, and they drop off uh, some people that the Japanese naval intelligence want to interrogate. Uh, about twenty Marines and sailors with backgrounds in aviation and communications and. Uh, by the 24th of, of January, it's 12 days after the ship left Wake, it, it uh, docks at Shanghai uh, and then uh, takes the Wake uh, Islanders and some uh, British and American POWs uh, who were captured in Shanghai, a couple of gunboat crews and naval personnel from uh, attached to the, the British and American consuls, uh, takes them down uh, 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 along the Wengpu River uh, to a town called Wusong, and they march to a POW camp five miles from the Wengpu River. And you deem that a, a bit of good fortune as well, being being held in, in or near Shanghai, at least. Shanghai is the fifth largest port in the world. Uh, it's one of the largest cities in East Asia. It's one of the most prosperous cities in East Asia. Uh, it has a large uh, international um, settlement uh, that contains uh, about 10,000 uh, uh, Europeans, largely Americans and, and Britons. And uh, these people, uh, the Japanese, don't intern them right away. They're, they're running loose for, for the better part of another year while the Japanese learn how to, to, to manage uh, the Shanghai economy by looking over their shoulders. But uh, the U.S. dollar and the British pound went far, far away in East Asia. These people are, 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 are rich uh, by most standards of judgment. And when they hear that, that uh, you know, their fellow countrymen are, are kept as POWs, uh, uh, the British had their own association. The American had their own, Americans had their own association. They, they're willing to contribute all kinds of stuff, you know, old clothing, and books, and magazines they're not interested in anymore. One one American dentist who's going to be repatriated gave his entire entire dental parlor uh, to the, the POW camp. And after a, a U.S. Navy dentist arrived from North China, uh, he was captured with the Marines guarding the the legation at Beijing. Um, POWs had full dental services. I mean, he could do everything except make dentures, but he could do all the other work, fillings, extractions. Uh, it was, uh, you know, they ended up with, with one of the best health facilities in any Japanese POW camp uh, in, in the war. Uh, and also these people were happy to work with the Red Cross, which was also active, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, Shanghai was one of the few cities where the Japanese let it operate behind their lines. Uh, and they're support the effort to, to get uh, uh, extra food and, and other amenities into the POWs. Um, I, I gather that the doctor played an important role as well. Was he one of the original Wake Islanders, the, the camp doctor? Uh, well, this, this was a, a dentist. Uh, when the North China Marines, as they were called, when they come in shortly after the Wake Islanders arrived, they bring two Navy surgeons and a dentist with them. Uh, the Wake Islanders had a Navy doctor, too, a doctor named Khan. The Japanese stripped him of most of his uh, medical uh, equipment. In fact, his early operations, he was performing appendectomies with a razor blade and sewing people up, doing sutures with regular regular uh, a thread and, and, and fishing line, whatever they whatever they could find. In fact, they, they, he didn't have drains to insert uh, in these incisions, but he remembered reading an article uh, in a medical journal that had, had an experimental procedure that said, you worry after you, 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 you take out the, the uh, infected appendix and you sprinkle sulfur drugs inside the incision, sew it back up. And, and he tried it and he said, well, nobody dies. I guess it was, I guess it worked. Uh, but uh, after, after the, the North China Marines come, they, they have an interesting status. They thought that they were going to be repatriated under the Boxer Protocol. Uh, because uh, they were guarding diplomatic missions. And the Japanese end up making them POWs, but they, they treat them differently because they're not sure either uh, until they get verification from Tokyo. So the North China Marines come into prison camp with basically all their personal property. Each enlisted man could carry a sea bag and a foot locker. The officers had more baggage. They even smuggled in 24 bottles of, of scotch. Uh, the Japanese didn't search their luggage because, again, they thought they might be diplomatic personnel. And, and their medical people came in with a, with a, a supply, a limited supply uh, of medical supplies and, and instruments. Uh, the Red Cross uh, will help uh, bring in more uh, medical supplies. And also the Japanese doctor 
at, at the camp, a doctor named Schindel, a young man who had been educated in Europe, educated in Germany, which gave him a different look uh, at, at, at health matters. The Japanese tended to think that, you know, if you got sick, you were letting down the team and you didn't deserve extra care and extra resources to get well. It was just your duty to do it. Uh, but, but Dr. Shindo, because he had been educated in the West, if you're sick, it's not your fault. We've got to get you better. So he tried to get the, uh, the, the American uh, medics uh, Japanese supplies and also saw to it that the POWs were regularly inoculated uh, for various kinds of, of diseases like typhoid and cholera and things like that. Uh, he also would have them weighed every so often, and you see in their diaries that uh, going through a rough period of food shortage, and the Japanese would weigh them, and then after the weighing, Japanese wouldn't make any kind of announcement, rations would go up a bit. So this doctor was making an effort to keep as many POWs alive as possible, and again, that was a rarity in the Japanese camps. That's a good segue to discussing one of the other strengths of the book, which is not just that you tell the story of this uh, relatively diverse group of, of Americans and with a few British in the camp as well, but you shed a lot of light, I think, on the Japanese as well, and there are, there are Japanese voices present in the book. Um, what does that tell us about this, what is, I think, in the American imagination, kind of axiomatic, axiomatic Japanese cruelty? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, a lot of the books on POWs reinforced by films like The Bridge on the River Kwai, the Japanese are, are slaves to Bushido, that they're indoctrinated in this, in this fierce medieval code, uh, that, uh, makes them, uh, uh, view anyone who, who surrenders, anyone who doesn't die fighting for his country or his emperor as, as a weakling, as someone beneath contempt, uh, not deserving. Uh, the resources necessary to keep them alive, or, or someone that, if you're going to feed them and keep them keep them alive, you'll work them very, very hard so they will uh, they will support the Japanese Empire, the Greater East Asia, a co-prosperity sphere, as the Japanese called it. But the Japanese, you know, Bushido got mongrelized in the 1930s. It was there was a lot more chivalry woven into the original code of the, of the samurai. And when Japan, uh, you know, modernizes and embarks on its imperialistic uh, course in the late 19th, early 20th centuries and starts fighting wars like the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese military goes out of its way to treat POWs well. During the Russo-Japanese War, uh, Japanese paid Russian prisoners twice as much as they paid their own troops. And there was no Geneva Convention talking about you know, paying enemy POWs, but they were getting not only regular rations, but extra money to buy goodies and things like that. The Japanese, again, uh, treated German POWs well during World War One. Their, their idea was to show the West that uh, we possess, and, and they use this phrase, Christian values. After Versailles, though, when, when Japan came away feeling the West didn't respect it anymore, there's a change in attitude. Uh, you know, we're going to not impress the West. We're going to expel the West from Asia. Uh, and, and that uh, affects how Bushido is taught to the nation. Uh, Japanese military, which is really running the country, wants to create this kind of great cool conscripts who will fight like all the Dickens uh, when, if, when if Japan goes to war. Uh, and there's this, you know, there's this, this resentment of, of Westerners. You know, you look down on us. When Westerners come into Japanese hands, first of all, if you're alive because you're a weakling, you have no honor. Uh, and secondly, you're the guy I'm going to take out this 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 uh, generation of resentment on. You know, you, I'm going to show you who is superior. Uh, so that that uh, that that's at play in a lot of Japanese camps. But we're, you know, we're dealing with individuals too, and and not everyone did that. You know, even in some of the worst camps, you hear stories of humane treatment. The Lake Islanders, they, they tended to run into a higher percentage of, of Japanese who broke with, with cultural norms and, and, and behaved in, in a different manner, what we would consider compassion. Uh, also, you know, because they're at Shanghai and because um, Shanghai has always been a kind of show place, it looks like the Japanese high command wanted that camp to be a show camp. Even though the Japanese uh, weren't living by the Geneva Convention, uh, they... They didn't want the rest of the world to think that. Uh, and, and they try to, to, to use uh, Shanghai, uh, uh, turn it into a model camp. They bring in reporters and newsreels, take a bunch of pictures, make a, a big magazine that looked exactly like Life magazine. They called it Freedom. They 
printed in English. They circulated it widely. Some of the pictures, in fact, that they used would be reprinted in life in the U.S. of A. Um, eventually, they kind of lose interest in that. But, but the commandants there uh, still feel, you know, we should try and take care of these POWs as well as we can. And since the, all these Westerners who are willing to subsidize the cost of doing that, why not? Uh, they could have they could have raked off a lot of the aid that was coming in. I mean, they did about a, maybe a third of it ended up at Japanese stomachs or Japanese pockets through the black market, but they let most of it get through, and uh, that made again that made a difference, a crucial difference in the survival of, of many of these men, many of these Americans and Britons. Yeah, it's interesting that by by discussing the cultural factors that may have shaped Japanese behavior, but also the individual stories, you make clear that that. It is ultimately a choice to be cruel or to be kind, even if the weight of culture may push in one direction or another. There are enough instances, um, like like the doctor that you mentioned, of of people behaving humanely that it it highlights those who don't. And if I recall the name, it's Ishihara is the is the real villain of the oh, story. Samu Ishihara, who is a uh, a translator, uh, he comes in. He's expecting the Japanese army to, to, to give the equivalent uh, status of an officer. But the Japanese army doesn't hand out commissions willy-nilly to unqualified uh, civilians. So he already has a chip on his shoulder. But this guy just seemed to hate Occidentals. He seemed to hate Westerners. Seemed to revel in uh, in, in humiliating them and also physically harming them. Um, most Japanese personnel, most officers, uh, don't speak English. So as, as, as translator, he is in a key position. He can misrepresent what the officers are, uh, are saying, and he can also misrepresent what the POWs say in response. Uh, there was some uh, restraint placed on, on, on those games by the fact that, that Major Devereaux, who had been educated um, in his youth in, in Europe and Switzerland and, and in other European schools, uh, he spoke French, um, and the uh, second Japanese uh, uh, commandant, uh, Handlebar Hank, as, as the POWs called him, had been a uh, Japanese attaché in France. And uh, Handlebar Hank liked showing off his French to someone who could understand it, so he and Devereaux had social conversations from time to time, and, and, and I suppose Ishihara realized that there was a way for the commandant to know what was really going on in the compound. But that I'm not a psychologist. Uh, the descriptions of Ishihara, he, he sounds like he was manic or, or, or bipolar. Uh, and he could he could just flip his lid at, at any time and uh, grab a, a club the thickness of a baseball bat and, and, and just beat a POW into the ground. Well, what what were the Japanese having the uh, the prisoners do? I mean, they did work the prisoners. What sorts of uh, activities did the prisoners engage in? The Japanese aren't going to feed anyone unless they're productive. So they used them, the POWs, for a number of work details. Uh, they, they, they would send them out to catch roads in the Shanghai area. They'd use them as stevedores sometimes to unload unload. Uh, Ships. They had them dig uh, big ditches uh, without explaining the purpose. The POWs thought they might be canals or, or tank traps. Uh, the really big work detail uh, begins uh, in 1943, and it was called the Mount Fuji Project. Ishihara gathered the POWs and said, we're going to build a beautiful park, and we're going to build a replica of our, of our sacred Mount Fujiyama back home where, where children can play and have a good time. Uh, so they, they took the POWs to a site some distance from the camp. They'd march them out every day and march them back. And they began digging and building mounds, one really big mound and the of smaller mounds laid out in lines leading to it. Um, the Marines in the group soon realized that the Japanese were having them build a rifle range, uh, which was a violation of the Geneva Convention. You're not supposed to use POWs to, for, for military works or military purposes. Um, but uh, Ishihara, uh, this became his pet project. He wanted it done quickly. Uh, he kept raising the quotas uh, of dirt that the POWs had to move. This was all being done by by hand tools as the uh, um, mountain uh, climbed. They were using uh, kind of like mining carts on tracks 
and they'd fill them with dirt and we'd have to push them to the top of the big mound and turn them over. And uh, this also coincided in 1943 and 44 with food shortages at Shanghai. Uh, the Red Cross wasn't getting as much nourishment in uh, because they're just promised throughout the entire area. Uh, so uh, their quota was being constantly raised, and, and they weren't allowed to go back to camp until they finished the quota. So men would leave, you know, uh, before uh, the sun rose and, and get back to their barracks at six, seven, eight at night uh, after the sun had gone down. Um, also, the Japanese, to speed up production, began reducing the, the number of men who were pushing the mining carts. They'd, they'd have more crews, so they could push more carts. But that's, this is happening as as the hill is getting higher. So it's a tougher and tougher climb, uh, and uh, it takes a heavy toll on the POWs. Uh, uh, tuberculosis starts kicking in in a lot of cases, and, and people who have other conditions, uh, these are exacerbated. Uh, and uh, uh, Ishihara just, uh, just revels in the suffering of the men. It's, it's like Satan presiding over hell. I mean, that sound... Uh, 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 that may not smack, smack of academic balance, but, but it certainly is the description that, that the POWs were, would have used for that, that situation. Yeah, you get a really good sense uh, reading the book of, of how how close they feel like they're coming to the to the collective end. I mean, it's the, that's that's the real threat to their collective survival. I think is that moment as you get this the the work is going up and the rations are going down, and and you get a real sense palpable sense of their the threat to the, the captives. So even though Shanghai overall was a better camp than others, there there were there were desperate moments there. And in some ways, it gets more desperate after they leave Shanghai, and and the story gets tougher to tell too because they go off in several different directions. Um, where do the bulk of the of the captives go when they leave Shanghai? Well, you know, it's uh, the Japanese left about three hundred and fifty prisoners on wake when they shipped out the main group, and and uh, about two hundred and fifty or two hundred and seventy of them are going to end up being shipped to Japan sometime in nineteen forty two in May and in September. The main group, the Japanese start shipping out drafts from there to work in their industries at home, steel mills and shipyards. The first draft goes out late in 42. A bigger draft goes out late in, in 43. Uh, other POWs are coming in. Uh, British POWs from Hong Kong, crews from captured merchant ships. When Italy gets rid of Mussolini, they end up incarcerating Italian Marines, which uh, improved the quality of soccer in the camp and also uh, the choir. Uh, but but the Shanghai War Prisoners Camp was finally closed on May 9th, 1945, and, and the remaining POWs, about 900 or so, are put on a train and shipped north. They'll, they'll, they'll be detained for about a month uh, outside Beijing, and then they're, they're put on a train again and shipped down through Korea to the port of Pusan, or Pusan as, as we call it today, and then... They're taken over to Japan. They enter Japan in early July 1945. And then the group is broken up again. The civilians, the Italians, they end up on, uh, in camps on the main island, on Honshu. Uh, most of the American servicemen are taken to Hokkaido, Japan's northernmost island. Uh, the officers uh, are separated from the men. They're put in a separate camp, and the enlisted men are put in two, uh, two camps called Hakadadi Number no. 2 and Hakadadi Number no. 3, which are, are used uh, to uh, supply labor for, for coal mines. Well, I hope, the, I hope the listeners can get a sense. I mean, of your, your command of the detail just in this interview is impressive, and obviously the book, you know, you had the, the, the time to to um, pour over the, the documents and so forth, uh, it's, it's even more detailed. But it's, a, it's an impressive feat to weave all these, these different stories uh, together. That was, um, the, that was the big headache, you know, trying to, trying to do that in a coherent fashion. Uh, that, was a, that was a real challenge. That's why I pretty much deal with the diaspora in the last chapter, trying to keep my focus on the main group at Shanghai. Yeah, I want to return to talk about the diaspora. That's one of the real tragic stories um, uh, here. But um, were the prisoners getting any news about the war? Did they have a sense that the war was, that the Allies were winning? Uh, they were shipped out on May 9th, you said. Did they have news that Germany had surrendered? They, it, 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 that's an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, as part of the uh, model camp uh, uh, agenda, the Japanese will present them with, uh, with uh, radios 
but the radios are set up to uh, only uh, receive stations in Shanghai, which are under Japanese control. So you're getting direct Japanese propaganda news. But there was a white Russian station, and uh, they uh, will at least give you accurate news of war on the Eastern Front. Well, at least they'll celebrate Soviet victories. Um, but a couple POWs uh, had backgrounds working with crystal sets and things like that, and they get some extra wire, and, and they monkey around with the radios. And one of them is converted so that you can you can raise the BBC from India, and I think uh, that set was also under under the right uh, weather conditions. You get a station in uh, in San Francisco. I think it was KGEI. Uh, but I, I might be wrong on, on the call call letters there. Um, some people will make their own uh, crystal sets. The North China Marines who came in with, uh, with their luggage unexamined, they come in with a radio, which they eventually retrieve. So there are sources. But, but the Japanese, you know, they, they can tell if there's unusual elect, uh, elect, electricity usage in the barracks. Uh, they have radios of, of their own, and, and some of these sets that the Americans are operating uh, will cause static interference. Uh, so you've got to be careful because you could tip off the Japanese. You also have to be careful as to how many people in camp you let know uh, about the existence of these radios because, you know, loose lips. Uh, a guard who you might not think understands English but does could overhear a conversation. And some of these sets got discovered. They're going to be shakedowns. That's what they call these uh, uh, unscheduled uh, inspections. The Japanese would find some of these sets. Others remained, remained hidden. New ones are being made all the time. Um, so they're getting they're getting bits of news, which would be disseminated in the form of rumors. Uh, so there, there's true rumor, there are true rumors and false rumors circulating at the same time. The Japanese also allow in some English language Japanese newspapers, which the POWs soon realize are just full of propaganda stories about Japanese pilots after their planes have been damaged, opening the cockpit, drawing their, their samurai swords, and knocking Allied planes out of the skies, things like that. Um, but also, each you know, throughout the war, new groups of POWs come in, including uh, a rising number of Allied airmen. So if a guy gets shut down at 44, it may take him uh, three months of being abused and, and interrogation before he reaches the camp and gets released to the general population. That's a source of at least verifiable news. So looking at the diaries, uh, and I was able to get access to a number of, of diaries that were secretly kept. People are hearing about, you know, uh, the Normandy landing, uh, about American victories, uh, and British victories in North Africa, uh, victory at Stalingrad, um, um, sometimes within, within a few days of it happening, it's been disseminated in one form or another to the general population. Well, I can't decide whether to, uh, I guess we should end on a good note. So let's talk about what happens to the Wake Island diaspora before we get to the story of the liberation, which I guess is the, the happy ending of the story. Uh, well, the diaspora, um, when we start at Wake. Yeah, well, these are the, the, the group, especially that's left behind at Wake, I think is a. The, the Japanese will leave 370 or so uh, American POWs on Wake when they take the main group up take the main group out on January 12th, 1942. Most of these POWs, about 350 of them, are um, are construction workers, and, and they keep them by specialty because you know, they want people who can build pillboxes and set up communication centers and, and lay communications wire and, and, and do all kinds of things that the Japanese feel are necessary to fortify Wake in case the Americans attack. And since they're only 2,000 miles from Hawaii, they, they realize that they can, they can expect American attacks. Another 20 are American servicemen who were too badly wounded uh, to leave on the Nita Maru. They need time to recover. They'll be shipped out um, uh, in May of 1942. And 250 of the civilian construction workers will be, be shipped out in in September. So um, that's when really the best records that I have for this group ends. 
uh, because the only surviving records that we have, except for a lot where someone carved uh, 98 PWs in, I think, May of 1943, Boulder, it's still there. Uh, there are no, no American records. The Japanese will end up executing those uh, 100 or so POWs. A couple get killed for uh, trying to steal food, uh, or at least one did. But, but the rest are executed uh, in October, early October 1943. The, the American military never made a, an effort to recapture Lake. But because it was in enemy hands, it would get bombed every so often. Carrier task groups would go out and harass it, uh, destroying the aircraft there. American submarines were offshore, making, making sure Japanese supply ships couldn't come in. And uh, there's an intensive bombardment by both carrier planes and also naval guns on October 5th and 6th, 1943. The Japanese uh, uh, commander decides, well, this is just a softening up. The Americans are going to try and land here. And so uh, he orders them executed. He has them taken out and, and bound and, and machine gunned, um, shot, shot in the back, shot down with rifles, too. Incredibly, one of one of the POWs got away. <laughs> one of his subordinates, after they buried the dead, uh, informed him that that, that the, there was a man missing, and, and he ordered all the dead dug up again to verify it. The guy was captured after about a, another week, and, and, and the admiral in, in charge of Wake he executed him with a sword personally. Um, so uh, that war crime will be discovered afterwards. Uh, and and that uh, commanding officer will be hanged after a trial. Will be hanged on Guam, uh, I think, in 1947 as punishment. So you were able to use court records to uh, to uncover this story because of the, the trial. When when Wake finally uh, was taken under American control, a destroyer went out there and a Marine Honor Guard landed. The Japanese surrendered after their emperor had ordered the surrender. This happened in September of 1945. Uh, the first thing they asked, you know, where were the POWs that were left here? And, and they got a, they got a story. Well. During the bombing raid, a bomb hit one of the dugouts, and, and the POWs mutinied, and they grabbed a couple of rifles. And half of them were killed by your bombs, but the other half wouldn't surrender, so we had to kill them. But this was a rehearsed story. You know, it was just it was just too. Everybody was giving the same story, and, and so the Americans began investigating and questioning people separately. And and uh, the, one of the top aides uh, to the island commander, uh, he will write a confession and kill himself. And then once the story was out, uh, in fact, this Japanese admiral, he told his officers, okay, tell them the truth. I will take full responsibility. And uh, another interesting cultural note, even though this guy was a war criminal, because he took the responsibility, because he became kind of a martyr, he's honored in, in that form in his home village in Japan to this day. But as you point out in the book, the, the vast majority of the other uh, captives do manage to survive the war, um, and most of them, again, are liberated in Japan. Describe that moment. It's, a, it's an interesting story. Well, the, the, you know, the emperor, after, after the atomic bombs hit, and, and there's, uh, of course, uh, intense debate within the Japanese government, he will take it on himself to, to order his people to surrender. He will, for the first time in his life, uh, he will speak on the radio. His people will actually hear his voice. And, and he will tell them that, that Japan has no choice. And um, General MacArthur is put in charge, Douglas MacArthur is put in charge of, of the occupation. Uh, before American troops can get there, though, he, he tells Japanese authorities, you better take care of the POWs you have. I want to know where all the camps are. Um, and uh, uh, the, the American military, uh, the Army Air Forces, and also uh, uh, carriers that are operating within range will start flying relief missions. They'll start airdropping supplies to these camps. Uh, um, they take 55-gallon uh, fuel drums that are empty, and, and they fill them up with whatever they got. Uh, you know, uh, K rations, C rations, uh, khaki clothing, shoes, uh, caps, uh, comic books, magazines. And then they put these things on pallets, and, and they push them out their bomb bays. Uh, their parachutes attached, but, but the weight's too great. Parachutes get, get torn off. So these efforts to, to save POWs come, well, in one case, a Wake Islander is killed. Uh, several Japanese civilians living in camps nearby where the barrels came down, uh, they're killed as well. So there's a note of tragedy, but for the rest of the guys, I mean, this is Christmas in, 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 uh, in August. Uh, in fact, uh, 
at, at the camps in Hokkaido, Dr. Khan, who's there with the Marines, he, he's warning him, you know, you cannot, you cannot eat this stuff, uh, at least not that much of it, because it's too rich. It will kill you. Uh, someone talked about uh, eating, eating candy par and just shaking from, from, he said, he said he had never felt so warm inside in his entire life, the energy that was coming into the system. So they have to acclimate to fat living, but I mean, still, you know, to, to, to have this stuff coming down and to know that you can start ingesting it on a gradual basis. It was the greatest day of their lives. And then, um, relief teams are going to be sent off, uh, to the various camps. Some will, uh, they'll reach some camps sooner uh, than later and they'll start bringing, uh, the, the POWs to either airfields and eventually to ports like Yokohama where they're put on hospital ships or other transports and uh, taken to Guam where, where the really sick guys are, are, are taken off and put in hospitals and then taken to the States where most of the rest will spend some time in, in Navy or Army hospitals to to, to recuperate from their, provi- their privations, to, to put weight back on, to be, to be checked out uh, um, by the doctors to make sure there aren't any any kind of side effects or, or, or hidden, hidden symptoms that need to be treated. A lot of them had had some bouts with tuberculosis, and, and so uh, that, that required careful handling back then. It still does. And of course, not surprisingly, uh, they maintain many of their connections. There's a there's an association of Wake Island defenders, right? Are there are, how many of them are still around? Uh, there was um, both groups uh, dissolved in, in earlier in the century because um, the high mort- the mortality rate was, was was escalating, and they're just too old to kind of run uh, uh, conventions anymore you know, to, to manage reunions. So it, it, it's they're they're looser bonds. And in many cases, uh, children and wives and, and, and grandchildren have kind of stepped in and, you know, they'll, they'll have like informal reunions or they'll bring a few, few, few veterans together. But, but in their prime, when I first met these people in the late 70s and through the 80s and 90s, up, up until the 60th anniversary in 2001, a couple of years beyond, they had their own reunions and it was, uh, you know, it was it was a sight to see uh, these people. Uh, time would uh, would disappear when, when they saw each other. They'd be, they'd be boys or young men again and reliving reliving their experiences. They they tended to dwell on on humorous things, uh, but uh, a lot of their relatives told me that. Uh, the stuff that, that has appeared in my book, their their fathers or uncles or grandfathers had never mentioned to them because those were some of the darker things. And, and it's only natural you want to shield your loved ones from from experiences like that. The work on this book exemplifies um, part of one of the pleasures of being an historian. I mean, you uh, getting to meet the participants. We don't all, all get to do that, but the travel. I mean, you travel to Wake uh, to Japan. Of course, uh, coupled with the grinding work in the archive and juggling the the details and telling the story, but there are some pleasures there as well. It's it's, it's a privileged existence. I, I don't know if you want that secret to get out. But, no. <laughs> well, this is we're coming to the end of the interview, so maybe maybe uh, maybe uh, it'll sneak in there without anyone noticing. But I, I do I I recommend the book to to those who are listening. I think you get a, a good sense of what a what a gripping individual story it is. What a what an important collective story it is of this this group of people who whose experience is in some ways unique. I mean, they they do have some good fortune, and um, it's perhaps not a typical experience, but it's a story certainly well worth telling. Um, we like to end these interviews with a, uh, by giving the author a chance to talk a little bit about what he's working on now, to, to see this project in a, in a continuum of, of historical research that you're carrying out. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Well, I, I don't know if I'm working in, in the continuum or if I've made a break. I'm uh, now researching an aspect of the American Revolution that I think has been overlooked. I'm looking at uh, Lord Cornwallis's 1781 Virginia campaign. Um, most historians who, who deal with that are in such a hurry to get to Yorktown and celebrate George Washington's victory that they uh, miss the fact that, that the British uh, brought Virginia, the, the biggest and most populous and richest of the 13 rebellious colonies, to its knees, paralyzed 
in the months preceding Yorktown uh, by attacking uh, property and freeing slaves. Uh, and I think a social history of that, that campaign uh, will illustrate uh, how vulnerable the American Revolution was, especially a, a, a slaveholder's rebellion. I mean, they had a ready-made fifth column uh, in Virginia, and when the British came and, and slaves realized that uh, freedom uh, uh, was to be found among the Redcoats, um, lots of them fled to the Redcoats, lots of them brought uh, uh, assets that the Redcoats could use, like some of the fine thoroughbred horses that the Virginians had. Uh, Cornwallis probably had the, the fastest-moving army uh, that was ever seen in the American Revolution. He could even mount hundreds of his infantry, which uh, added to the terror uh, that Virginians felt because uh, his, his Troopers, in some cases, could ride 70 miles in 24 hours, and, and you can strike at a lot of hearts and minds when you have that capacity. Well, it may be a different subject, but I'm sure there'll be a continuity, at least in terms of the skill with which the story is told. So we'll look forward to, to that work as well. Uh, it's been my pleasure to speak with Professor Gregory J.W. Irwin about his recent book, Victory in Defeat, The Wake Island Defenders in Captivity. It's Naval Institute Press. Uh, published in 2010. Thanks for listening. Uh, thank you, Greg, for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye. You've been listening to the interview with Gregory J.W. Irwin, author of Victory and Defeat, The Wake Island Defenders in Captivity, on New Books in Military History. Thanks for listening.